Today we'll uh, go line by line through the gospel and make comments, taking explanations from the commentaries of Cornelius the Lapidae and the Haydock commentary. Before we look at particular verses, we'll start with a brief overview of the event. Uh, Cornelius the Lapidae points out, as many of you must know from your Bible reading, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have slight differences in their accounts of the transfiguration. And so he very helpfully reconciles the different accounts, one with each other. So here are the order of events. First, Christ prays. And meanwhile, Peter, James, and John, who are tired from uh, hiking up the mountain and the length of time that our Lord is praying, fall asleep. While they're sleeping, our Lord is transfigured. Moses and Elias come, and they talk with Christ concerning his death upon the cross, which he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. The apostles are roused from sleep by the brightness of our Lord and the talking, and so they behold the glory of Christ and Moses and Elias uh, speaking with him. When their conversations ended and it looked like they were going away, St. Peter, as it were, being inebriated with pleasure and grieving at their imminent departure, sought to make three tabernacles, so they paused for a while longer. Then the cloud descended, obscuring, obscuring Moses and Elias, and they heard the voice speaking to Christ, This is my beloved Son. And so the apostles, being frightened, fell down, and were presently comforted raised up by our Lord, and finally lifting up their eyes, they saw our Lord alone. Okay, now let's uh, walk through the verses. And after six days, Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. This is James the Greater, uh, the brother of St. John. He preached the gospel in Spain. He's the first of the apostles to be martyred. We can read about that in chapter 12 of the Acts of the Apostles. And his relics are in Compostela, Spain. Christ selects these three apostles and manifests his glory to them to strengthen them and prevent them from being scandalized when he later showed the same three apostles his weakness and his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Next line. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. The fathers explain that Christ did not transfigure himself before his three apostles as if it were to manifest his divinity directly to them, as he does to the saints in heaven, because his divinity cannot in any way be seen with the eyes of flesh. Christ showed the apostles the external glory of his body as an indication or a sign of his divinity. Here's an interesting fact. Christ, our Lord, possessed this splendor as well as the other gifts of a glorified body throughout his entire life. Before we explain that, let's quickly review our catechism to make sure we all remember what the gifts of a glorified body are. So question uh, 409 or Baltimore Catechism is what are the qualities of a glorified body? And the answer is the qualities of a glorified body are first, brilliancy, by which it gives forth light, which is what we're seeing in the transfiguration. Second, agility, by which it moves from place to place as rapidly as an angel, so they move with the speed of thought. Third, subtlety, by which material things cannot shut it out. So we see our Lord's glorified body passing through closed doors in the upper room. We see his glorified body passing out of the tomb we also see him uh, as a baby passing through Our Lady's womb. An impassibility by which it is made incapable of suffering. 
So Christ possessed this brilliance, this splendor, as well as the other gifts of a glorified body throughout his entire life from the very moment of his conception. Okay, but if that's true, then why do we only see this during the transfiguration? Cornelius Lapides, summarizing the teaching of the fathers, explains, in order that Christ might suffer and have his conversation among men, our Lord held back this glory and the other gifts proper to glorified body in his soul, so they were not allowed to pour forth into his body. Otherwise, these gifts, especially the gift of brilliancy, would have shone through his body like light through a lantern. So this repression of the brilliancy and the other gifts was therefore a miracle. Okay, so in other words, during his whole life, except during his transfiguration, he is actively repressing his brilliance by means of a miracle, holding that within his soul so it doesn't pour out into his body. And, and so he's, that re repressing of these gifts took a miracle. Cornelius Lapide continues, and so during the transfiguration, the cessation of this repression and the emanation of the interior splendor from the soul into the body of Christ was actually the cessation of a miracle. But to men, this sudden brilliance, this transfiguration, seemed to be a miracle because it was new. They hadn't seen it before, and they were ignorant of the cause. Why was Christ transfigured? One, that by means of this glory and brightness, and by the testimony of Elias and Moses, he might demonstrate his divinity to his apostles. Two, that he might forewarn his disciples not to lose confidence when they beheld him nailed to the cross. Three, as the doctors of the church, St. Ephraim of Syria, St. Cyril, St. John Damascene, St. Basil the Great, and others, teach that he was transfigured to indicate that he should come in this manner with great power and majesty to judge the world, which is why Elias, who will be the forecomer, uh, forerunner of Christ when he comes to judge, also appeared. And four, that he might strengthen the faith and the hope and the courage and the zeal of the apostles and the rest of us to undergo bravely all crosses for the sake of the gospel with the hope of obtaining a similar glory at the resurrection. Because there's two choices at the resurrection, and this is the one we want. Next line. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with them. Why did Moses and Elias appear rather than any of the other prophets? According to the doctors of the church, St. John Christum, uh, St. Jerome and St. Ambrose, they appeared because Moses was the legislature, legislator of the old law, while Elias was the prince of the prophets. These two appeared to show that Christ was the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, promised by both the law and the prophets. St. John Chrysostom points out that the Jews had accused Christ of blasphemy and of breaking the Sabbath. But these accusations were refuted by the very presence of Moses and Elias, because Moses, who was the lawgiver, the legislator of those very laws would never have proved someone who was a transgressor of the law. And because Elias, who was so full of zeal for the glory of God, would have never honored someone who made himself equal to God unless he really was the Son of the Most High. St. Thomas gives several other reasons. First, our Lord showed that he had the power of life and death and is the judge of the living and the dead because he had with him Moses, who was dead, and Elias, who is yet alive, and still is. And because, as St. Luke says, they spoke of his past and death. In order to strengthen his disciples in preparation for this, our Lord brings before them those who had exposed themselves 
to death for God's sake. For Moses presented himself before Pharaoh at the peril of his life, as Elias did before Ahab at the peril of his life. How and in what manner did Moses and Elias appear? Cornelius Lapide explains, Everyone agrees that Elias himself appeared in his own body. For Elias was taken up in a chariot of fire and is still alive. Then he come again and contend with the Antichrist. From the place where he is living, he was suddenly taken by an angel of Mount Tabor to speak with Christ in his transfiguration. So that's Elias. There are various opinions with respect to Moses. It is certain that Moses is dead. Some think that this was not Moses who really appeared, but an angel in the form of Moses. But this is certainly an error, says Suarez. Suarez is a great Jesuit theologian. This is certainly an error, says Suarez, because Moses is introduced as a witness of Christ, and a witness must bear testimony in his own person. The soul then of Moses was translated from limbo by an angel to the earth. Limbo, of course, is the fringe of the underworld. The great doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellman, summarizes the tradition when he points out that the underworld has four uh, chambers or levels. The innermost chamber, the innermost level, is Jehanna, what we commonly call hell. That's the abode of the devils and of the damned souls. Immediately above it, with the same heating system but different situation, is purgatory. Above that is the limbo of the fathers and then the limbo of the children. The limbo of the fathers is where the saints of the Old Testament went when they died. Remember, heaven is closed. So that's where St. Joseph, Adam, and Eve, and Moses were. In fact, if you went to purgatory in the Old Testament when you got released, you just got to the limbo of the fathers. You couldn't get out of the underworld. That's the whole point. Then the limbo of the fathers emptied on Easter Sunday when our Lord came up from, from there, rose himself from the dead. And so they came up to earth. And then on Ascension Thursday, he led them all into heaven. Okay, so uh, it, that happened on Ascension Thursday, which, by the way, always comes on a Thursday. Um, and I, I know also that some people uh, have been told that limbo no longer exists. It is a geographic location, and saying it no longer exists makes about as much sense as saying Australia no longer exists. Even if you make a globe or a map without Australia on it, that has, will have very little effect on the reality of Australia being there or not, okay? It's not going to go anywhere. We've explained all that before. So the soul of Moses was taken from the limbo of the fathers by an angel of the earth and assumed a body, either formed by an angel out of available materials, as St. Thomas thinks, or else was led by an angel to his sepulchre, and there his ashes were collected by the angel and formed into a body to which the power of God reunited his soul. And thus it was the true and living Moses whom the angel transferred from the sepulchre to Mount Tabor. For it was fitting in that, witness, in that witnessing to Christ everything should be real and solid, and that Christ, by thus raising up Moses, should show that he is both the Lord and the judge of the living and the dead. This is the opinion of Tertullian, Origen, St. Irenaeus, and others whom Suarez cites and follows. If someone follows this opinion and supposes that Moses rose again, he must also suppose that he died again, since Christ our Lord was the very first of all those who rose unto immortal life. Next line. And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Peter said this when Moses and Elias were about to depart in order that he might get them to pause longer. 
Next line. And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and lo, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The cloud is not only a veil, but also the symbol of the glory of God. Throughout the Old Testament, a cloud was a means by which God manifests his incomprehensible majesty to the Hebrews. We see this, of course, uh, in the book of Exodus, but you see it other places, Psalm 103, uh, Psalm 17, other passages. Uh, we see in the Old Testament the cloud called the chariot of God, his tabernacle, his throne, the seat of his majesty, the seat of his omnipotence. When our Lord shall come again to judge the living and the dead, he will come in the clouds of glory. The cloud was bright because it represented the glory and majesty of the Father whose voice was heard. In 2 Peter 1.17, St. Peter, eyewitness of this event, calls this cloud the excellent glory of the Father who spoke out of it and who by means of it increased the glory of the transfiguration of the Christ. The great doctors of the church, St. John Chrysostom and St. John Damascene, explained that the cloud was also bright to signify the difference between the old law and the new. In the old law, God appeared to the Jews in a black cloud because that law was full of shadows and terrors. In the new law, he appears in a bright cloud because the new law brings glory and truth and love. The voice is the voice of God the Father to Christ. It comes after Moses and Elias departed to make it perfectly clear and certain to the apostles that these words were addressed to Christ alone and not to either Moses nor Elias. During the transfiguration, just as we see in the baptism of our Lord, the Trinity is symbolically represented. The Holy Ghost is represented, in this case, by the cloud, the Father by the voice, and, of course, the Son by himself. The voice said, hear him, not Moses, who has gone away, but Christ, as the new legislator of the new law. These words, hear him, were not said of Christ at his baptism because he was then, for the first time, shown to the world. But they're now being said to him because he's being set forth as the teacher and the legislator. Therefore, the doctors of the church, St. Leo the Great and St. John Damascene, teach that these words denote the ending of the old law and the inauguration of the new. In other words, because the law and the prophets are fulfilled and verified in Jesus Christ, the new legislator and prophet, you are to hear and obey him in preference to either Moses or Elias or any other teacher. Next line. And the disciples hearing fell upon their face and were very much afraid. They were afraid when they heard the voice because, as the doctor church, St. Ephraim of Syria explains, at the sound of this voice, the apostles fell flat upon the earth, for terrible was the thunder, and the voice shook the earth. St. John Chrysostom adds that being struck with fear, they fell on their faces, worshiping God and beseeching him that the thunder and lightning might not strike them. Next line. And Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise and fear not. St. John explains that the terrified disciples are still prostrate on the ground and unable to rise when our Lord, with his usual kindness, approaches, touches them, drives out the fear, and restores them to the use of their limbs. Next line. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. This signifies symbolically that the law and the prophets had disappeared now that Christ our Lord is present, and that he alone remained who brought the true light of gospel to mankind. Last line. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Tell the vision to no man, 
not only to not just other people, as St. Jerome says, but not even to the other apostles. Why weren't they supposed to tell the other apostles? So the others wouldn't become sorrowful or envious because they weren't present with Peter and James and John at the Transfiguration. They would be silent about this mystery until the resurrection of our Lord had prepared men's minds to believe this. Our Lord did not want the apostles to expose such a wonderful event to the envy of the Pharisees, who were already attacking and misrepresenting the most evident miracles. Our Lord also gives a lesson here to each of us to observe the closest secrecy when it comes to signal graces and favors of the Lord. When it comes to spiritual things without the permission of our confessor, we need to observe the closest secrecy. One last reflection. Anyone who reads his Bible will quickly notice that the events of the Transfiguration parallel the events we see on Mount Sinai. In both of these cases, Moses and our Lord, they go up on a mountain. In both cases, the mountaintop was then covered with the glory cloud of the Lord. In both cases, a voice came from the cloud. In both cases, the witness are struck with fear. In both cases, there's a dazzling appearance of glory, but in the case of Moses, it's only his face that's shining with glory. Well, with our Lord, it's his entire body and even his clothing, and it's emanating from him. On Mount Sinai, the law was revealed to Moses, and we see the word of God written in stone on two tablets of the law. But on Mount Tabor, on the Mount of Transfiguration, on the new Sinai, we see a new law being revealed. Not the word of God written in stone, but the word made flesh. Moses had told the people in Deuteronomy 18.15, quote, Lord thy God will raise up to thee a prophet of thy nation, of thy brethren, like unto me. Him thou shalt hear. And now we see that prophet like unto Moses, that prophet that Moses had commanded the people to hear. And we see the fulfillment of the prophecy as we hear the voice of the Heavenly Father commanding the apostles to hear him. Today and during this Holy Lent, let us each take the time to really search our minds and hearts and ask ourselves, do we hear him? Do we really listen to him? Do we just hear what we want to hear? Have we adjusted the words of our Lord, the teachings of our holy faith, till they're comfortable for us? Or are we listening to the authentic voice of our Lord and hearing everything he has to say to us?